asking Samuel for Samuel to appoint a human king. And Israel had never had a king before in her history. At the beginning of Israel's history as a nation, she had two rulers, two national leaders, I, I should say, two national rulers. First, there was Moses when the nation was established as in the Exodus and for the 40 years of wandering. Then there was Joshua. After Moses died, Joshua led the people into the promised land. The nation starts with these two national leaders, national rulers, and then after that you have regional rulers in the form of the various judges. And Samuel is the last of the judges as we've seen, but he's getting old and his sons are totally unfit to rule because they're corrupt. So the elders of Israel, as we saw last time, make their request to Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 5, and they say this, You have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. This request in verse 5 offends Samuel, and so we see in verse 6 that it is displeasing to him. As we saw last time, that is the Hebrew word ra'ah, which means in this context, displeasing or evil in one's eyes. It wasn't evil that they asked for a king because God had promised a king many, 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 many times. What was evil was the type of king that they asked for, that they requested. They wanted a king who was like all the other nations. That's the problematic phrase right there. Many times God had told Israel that they would have a king, but Israel's king was supposed to be different than the kings of all the other nations. He wasn't supposed to have, for example, in Deuteronomy 17, a standing army. He wasn't supposed to have a big treasury. He wasn't supposed to have a large harem. Those were things that the foreign kings trusted in. They trusted in a, in a powerful standing army. They trusted in a, in a large treasury. They trusted in a large harem because the harem usually meant that they had political alliances. Those were political marriages with foreign nations that would give them political stability. Israel's king was to have none of that. He was instead to trust in God and God alone. By the way, there's nothing wrong with having a standing army and there's nothing wrong with having a big treasury. Of course, there's something wrong with a harem, but... A nation, a Gentile nation that has a large army or a large treasury, there's nothing wrong with that. This is a prescription for Israel because Israel was called to be different than the nations. In fact, I think it's wise for a nation to have a strong military and a strong treasury, especially in light of the collective depravity of man that you see in other nations. I just wanted to just be clear just because Israel was told that she shouldn't have a standing army, a strong army, a strong standing army, or a strong treasury doesn't mean that Gentile nations should not have that. We should have it, and yet we should trust in God as well. The point here is that the nation of Israel is asking for a king that is inconsistent with God's design. Israel and her king were to rely on the promises of God promises that were unique to Israel, which is to say the Abrahamic covenant. Covenant is a sophisticated way of saying promise. They were to rely on the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and the various promises that God had given her. God would provide the stability and the peace and the prosperity 
for Israel. Now, the rub in all of this is that God is invisible. And so in order for Israel to trust that God would provide peace and stability and military victory like they won, there's nothing wrong with wanting those things, with wanting, wanting those aspects of prosperity. But in order to rely on an invisible God to provide those things, they needed to live by faith and not by sight. This was the problem. They didn't want to live that way. And so they wanted a king who would reflect their worldview. They wanted a leader who would think the way they thought. They wanted a leader who would not rely on the invisible God, but instead would rely on visible soldiers and visible silver coins and visible gold coins. Let's go back and look just by way of review because it's, it's so important to understand God's design for a king. Let's go back and look just for a few more minutes at Deuteronomy 17. We saw Deuteronomy 17 last time, but you see on the screen here, Deuteronomy 17 is God's design for Israel's king. In verse 18, we read, when he sits, this is, this is God describing what the king was to do. When he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law, of the law of Yahweh, on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God, to fear Yahweh Elohim, the Lord his God. You see, God wanted a king for his people who would fear him, a king who would fear Yahweh. Fear is reverential awe. You remember the proverb, Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. We saw last time that not all proverbs are ironclad guarantees from God. Not all Proverbs are unconditional promises from God. Some of them are and some of them are not. The ones that are not, like raise a a child up in the way that he should go and when he is old he will not depart from it, that is not an ironclad guarantee as we saw last time. You have different types of Proverbs. Some are unconditional promises of God and some are general statements, general principles that happen Most of the time, that's what raise a child up when he is young and he will not depart from it when he is old. That's what that proverb is. It's a general statement that is true most of the time. Well, the proverb, Proverbs 9.10, that says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that is an unconditional promise because it's found elsewhere in the Scripture. That's how you make the distinction in Proverbs between an unconditional, ironclad promise from God and a general statement that is true most of the time, the way you make that distinction is if you find the promise elsewhere in the Scripture, then you say, okay, this is not a, a, a proverb that is just a general statement. This is a proverb that is a guarantee from God. That's the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see here that God wants a king who will fear him, who will approach him in reverential awe, who will respect him. Because if the king will respect God, then the king will respect God's People. He won't take advantage of God's people and he will wield his power in a humble fashion knowing that he will have to answer to God. What I want you to see though in this design of God for the king of Israel in Deuteronomy 17 is I want you to see two things about the fear of God. Number one, it's not natural. It's not natural for you to fear God. 
or for me to feel God. I mean, what's natural for us are the things of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, as the Apostle John says in, in 1 John. That's what we're drawn to. That's what's natural for us. God doesn't call us to the natural. He calls us to do the supernatural. And so that's why you see this language here that the king must learn. He must learn to fear God because it's not the typical thing that the human being is drawn to. It's the supernatural thing. And the second aspect of fearing the Lord that I want you to see here is that what teaches us to fear God is studying His Word. You see that as the passage unfolds. There in verse 19, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up among his countrymen, above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or to the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in the kingdom, in his kingdom, in the midst of Israel. You see, the way you learn to fear God what, is, what does it say there in verse 19? It shall be with him, the, the law will be him, with him, and he will read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord. The way you learn to fear the Lord God is by reading his word. It's by studying his word. The reason you need to study the word of God is because the culture is bombarding you, the world is bombarding you with something that is the opposite, with the mocking of God, with the disregarding of the ways of God. And so you must counter that because you're getting fed one way or the other. You're getting either fed by the world or you're being fed the Word of God from the study of the Word of God. God's design for the Israel's king was that he would live by God's law, that he would rely on God's law, that he would rely on God's provision, not on his own kingly power, and most importantly, that he would learn to fear the Lord his God. And so in 1 Samuel 8, Israel's request for a king was not for a Deuteronomy 17 type king. It was for a king like all the other nations. So God, who was always merciful, always merciful, at least at the beginning, God, in his mercy, warns the people. He tells Samuel to warn the people about their consequences, about the consequences of their decision to reject God's design. He tells Samuel to warn the people about what a king like this would do to them. And so we see the warning beginning in verse 10 of chapter 8. Let me read the entire warning, and then we'll circle back to some of the details of it. Verse 10 begins like this. So Samuel spoke all the words of Yahweh to the people who had asked of him a king. He said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen and they will run before his chariots so when a king would proceed to some new town in his golden chariot he'd have runners in front he'd have the horses of course and the man who was who was manning the horse the king's not going to not going to hold the the, um, the 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 bridle of the horse or the the reins of the horse He's got a man standing there in the chariot, and then he's got runners who are running in front of the horses to announce the coming of the king. What's being described here is that the king is going is to take your sons and have them as his runners and have them as his horsemen and have them as his soldiers. Keep reading verse 12. 
He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers. You will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. The word that controls all of this is the word in verse 11. The procedure. You see that word in verse 11? It's the same word that we saw in verse 9. It's the wordplay that we saw last time. It's a wordplay that we miss in our English translations. This is a wordplay that God uses to warn about the vast differences between how Samuel ruled the nation and how a king of this type will rule the nation. Samuel was the greatest of all of the judges. He provided, through his submission to God, he provided national stability and prosperity and peace. You see all of this at the end of chapter 7. In the last three verses of chapter 7, you see Samuel's godly rule by the repetition of the Hebrew word shafat, to judge. In each of those verses, the last three verses of chapter 7, you see the references to him judging, and him judging, and him judging. Shafat, as we've seen, means to rule or govern or judge But in verses 9 and 11 of chapter 8, we get a different word. Because there we we see a warning of a new rulership that will come upon the land. The word sounds similar to Shaphat, but it's different. It's a different context. It's it's a combo word. It's Shaphat plus me, plus the interrogative me. Interrogative is, is a question. So me means what? Or how? So you take shafat and you squish it with the, word, the Hebrew word me and you get, it, it changes the F to be a P sound. Instead of mishfat, you get, you get the, the, the pronunciation mishpat and it means judgment or ruling or decision. The wordplay here is, hey, Samuel was shafating and he was doing a good job shafating. He was doing a good job. He gave prosperity to the nation. End of chapter 7. Three, last three verses chapter 7. Great prosperity to the nation. But this king, the type of king that you're asking for, the king like all the other nations, he's going to give mishpat. He's going to give judgments and decisions and rulings that are different than the wonderful prosperity that the greatest of all the judges Samuel gave. And the example of his mishpat, of his judgments, of his rulings, of his decisions, is this long warning in verses 10 through 17. The king's new rulership will have decisions and judgments that are very ugly and that are very distasteful to the people. This is what God is warning them. There's a theme that pervades the warning in verses 10 through 17. The type of king that they want is going to take. You see the phrase, he will take, six times in these verses, 10 through 17. He will take, he will take, he will take. And what's he going to take? He's going to take what belongs to you. And that's why you see your, the second person pronoun, 
12 times. He's going to take what's not his, and he's going to take it from you. This is what an unfair king does. Right? That's what King George did to us. And that's why we have a takings clause in the federal constitution and in the state constitution. Right? The takings clause is found in the Fifth Amendment. Private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Our Texas constitution mirrors that language of, or has, a, has similar language as the Fifth Amendment. The Israelites would have no Fifth Amendment with this king, the king that they, the type of king they were asking for because he would take what he wanted, when he wanted, from whom he wanted, however he wanted. The Israelites would have zero recourse, not even just compensation, which often is hollow resources, is a hollow resource even when the state takes something under, under the Fifth Amendment. They may be required to compensate you, but the mere fact of them taking it even if they compensate you well, even if you walk away with a bag of money, it's still often a hollow recourse. The Israelites won't have any of that. They won't have just compensation. The king will do what he wants to do with impunity, and he will take your sons for his army, your daughters for his household staff, your productive land for his cronies. Verse 14, it says, the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groats. He's not going to take the dinky, unproductive land. He's going to take the productive land. He's going to impose on you a 10% tax on your produce to fund his officers and his servants, verse 15. In other words, to fund his power base. Your young men and your donkeys will be taken to work on the king's land. That's why you see verse 16, again, the word best. He's going to take your best young men and your donkeys, and he will take even your freedom from you. Verse 17, you will become his servants. You see, God is warning them that this is what you're asking for. The kings of your neighbors, you want a king like all the other nations, well, the kings of the other nations, the kings of the Canaanite nations that are around you, this is what they do. And so you're asking for a king like that, that's what he's going to do. Then God warns them that a time will come where you will have buyer's remorse. And you will wish that you have not, that you did not ask for this, but it will be too late. Look at verse 18. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king, whom you have chosen for yourselves, but Yahweh will not answer you in that day. Can I paraphrase? Elections have consequences. Something that we're painfully aware of. One of the worst of all the divine punishments is God giving us what we want. Because often what we want is wickedness. Not always, right? I mean, hopefully your prayers are asking for things that are godly, that are honorable. But when someone is rejecting God and someone is rejecting His word and His ways, then what we want are things that are wicked. And so God giving the wicked person what He wants is part of abandonment judgment. When the believer rejects God and his ways, the believer's eyes become crooked and perverted, and the believer's perception of what is good for him becomes corrupted. The believer longs for that which will hurt him, thinking that it will help him. I mean, that's what's happening here with Israel, right? With Israel, they're asking for a king like all the other nations. Why? What is it that is prompting them to ask for a king like this? They've got a problem and they want it fixed. 
What's their problem? Anybody remember? The problem is they've got corruption. Samuel, you're an old man. And your sons, who you've appointed judges, they're corrupt. You see that back in verse 3, right? Samuel's sons were engaging and it says, dishonest gain, bribes, and perverted justice. So what the people do, because the people's own perception of God is crooked, because they're rejecting God, they ask for a solution that will actually intensify the perverted justice. Now the justice is going to be unchecked, because now the justice will function under the cloak of legality. Right? You're going to have a king, and the king is going to do what he wants. He's going to wield his power, and he's going to have abuses, engage in abuses. But what are you going to do? You can't fight City Hall. He's the king. And so now you're going to have crooked justice that is the action of the government itself, that is the action of the king. Now the perverted justice will be legalized. The king will issue his mishpats, his judgments, his ruling, his rulings, his decisions, and now you're going to have legalized theft, right? The king's going to take 10% from you, and he's going to give it to his cronies. Why? To establish his power base, to solidify his power base. I feel like I've seen that movie somewhere before. The government will take what it wants by force, all under the cloak of legality, You see, things go desperately wrong when we abandon God. King Solomon will be the first of the kings that really starts to implement these abuses that God warns the people about. You can read about those, about King Solomon doing that in in 1 Kings 4. Sadly for Israel, she rejected the warnings. Keep reading in verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to listen to the voice of Samuel, and they said, No but there shall be a king over us that we, may, that we also may be like all the nations, that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. Here we see that the people want to be like all the nations. And in verse 5, we saw that they wanted a king who would be like all the nations. Verse 20 gives two reasons why they want a king that would be like all the nations. It's so that he would judge us, right? That's what it says, so that he will judge us, number one. And number two, so that he will go out before us and fight our battles. That's primarily what a king does. He judges, which is to say he leads, or he rules, he governs, and he fights battles. They want a king who will do all the functions of a king, but he will do it in a fashion that is like the kings of the other nations. I want to focus on the second function, though. On the second function, just for a minute here, of fighting battles and wars, going out before us to fight battles and wars. You see, Israel did not want to rely on God to fight for them anymore. When we sin, we become incredibly dumb. That's actually too delicate of a word. We become stupid when we sin. I mean... What we saw at the beginning of this book, in chapter 1, at the very beginning, is the first, well, in the first chapter, you see the title of God, that is the title that describes Him as the God of the armies, Yahweh Sabaoth, 
we are introduced to it. At the first part, or, or the, the, the first time that we see the title Yahweh Sabaoth, which means Lord of the Armies, in our old English, Lord of, Ho- Lord of the Hosts, it's introduced to us the first time in the Bible in chapter 1 of this book. And so that means Lord of the Armies. They don't want the God of the Armies... Yahweh Sabaoth means that he is the Lord of the armies of the angelic armies and of the armies of Israel. They don't want that God to fight for them in battle because he's invisible. I mean, they're okay if he delivers, sure, if he delivers military victory, but it's better to hedge a little bit, they think, and let's get a king that we can see with an army and money. And so in their sinfulness they lose their logic. They lose any proper way of thinking. Rejection of God as their warrior king wasn't just dumb. It was the height of insolence, the height of disrespect and rebellion against God. They don't trust God to fight for them despite the centuries of Yahweh delighting in delivering them from their enemies. When Israel camped, for example, on the west bank of the Red Sea and Pharaoh's chariots chased them In Exodus 14, verses 13 and 14, we read Moses speaking to the people and saying, Do not fear, stand by and see the salvation of Yahweh. Yahweh will fight for you while you keep silent. And then, of course, Yahweh parts the Red Sea. And the chariots of the most powerful army on the earth at that time, at least in the known world, Pharaoh, the chariots and the army are destroyed. And so what does Moses say in the next chapter, Exodus 15, 3? He describes Yahweh as a warrior. Or the next national leader, Joshua, before he begins his military campaign to dispossess the pagans from the promised land, Yahweh appears to him in Joshua 5, verse 14, as a man with his sword drawn who identifies himself as the captain or the commander of the host of the army of the Lord. And then Yahweh proceeds to tell Joshua to do the craziest of all military maneuvers when he takes the first city in the promised land. To go to the fortified city of Jericho that has all of these valiant warriors as they're described there in Joshua and to march around them like a bunch of confused soldiers to march around the city six days in a row. And then on the seventh day, to march around. But this time, you bring the the priest with seven trumpets and you have them blow the trumpet. That's not what soldiers do. They create a siege ramp and you assault a city. But God says, no, no, no. I want to be clear that I'm going to fight for you today. And so on the seventh day, when you blow the seven trumpets, I'm going to destroy the walls and then you're going to lay siege you're just going to enter the city because i'm going to fight for you there's a long history of centuries of god fighting for the israelites with pharaoh with the city of jericho and then all the other canaanite cities in the book of judges we saw yahweh the spirit of yahweh come upon various judges not so that they could have a tea party but so that they would be empowered for combat Empowered for warfare, we saw that with Othniel, Gideon, Jephthah, Samson, and as recently as the prior chapter, chapter 7, we saw Yahweh destroy the Philistines for Israel. But now, now, Israel doesn't want it. 
They don't want to rely on Yahweh, on the God of their fathers. They don't want to have to rely on an invisible God with invisible power. They want a human king with visible power and visible wealth and a visible army. This is the height of insolence and disrespect for a God who has delivered them over and over. Israel wants to be like the world. That's what we're seeing here. You see this phrase, they want to be like the nations. They want to be like the world. Unless we get too high on our high horse, we need to be careful. Because the temptation is for us to be like the world. I mean, do you understand that you are royal family? That you are royalty? You belong to the royal family of God. I mean, Jesus is called the king of the kings. And Jesus says that we are the children of God, the children of the king. We're described as the brothers, the brethren of Jesus, Romans 8 29, Hebrews 2.11. When Jesus is having the conversation with his disciples about the temple tax in Matthew 17, verses 24 through 27, he makes clear that we are the children of the king. He pays the temple tax even though he doesn't have to pay the temple tax. He pays it, and in this description with his disciples, he explains that we are the children of the king. We're even called royal priests by the Apostle Peter in 1 Peter 2.9. As church-age believers, we are part of the royal family of God. Remember what John said in John 1, verses 12 and 13 in the prologue of his book. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. We are given this new birth as royal family of God. And yet sometimes, like Israel here, Israel is wanting to be like the world because that's the temptation for the children of God. Sometimes we, as the royal family of God, act like not the children of the king, but as commoners. In fact, we act like the enemies of, of the king sometimes in the way we think, in the way we prioritize our lives We refuse to trust God when we're persuaded by the world that we need to be like them, that we need to conform our thinking, our priorities. And once we conform our thoughts and our priorities, then our actions and our words just follow. And so that's what's happening here with Israel. And this is what we need to be careful of because when we refuse to trust God as Israel's doing here, then we trust what we can see and touch and feel. You see, what Israel, what, what the Scripture does, the reason we study narrative literature, as we saw last time, is because it puts a mirror up in our own face and we see lessons that we can learn from with respect to Israel. Keep reading, verse 21. Now, after Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in Yahweh's hearing. You see, Samuel wore three hats. He was judge, priest and prophet we've already seen his judgeship he's a priest as we saw at the beginning of the book in chapter one because he's a levite his father elkanah was a descendant of levi and so what does a priest do a priest is a go-between a priest is a middleman a priest mediates between god and the people this is what we see samuel doing 
The people come to Samuel and say, Samuel, appoint us a king like all the other nations. Samuel prays to Yahweh, and Yahweh tells Samuel to warn the people. So Samuel goes back to the people and warns the people of what this type of king would bring. The people say, we want that king. So Samuel goes back to Yahweh and says, this is what the people want. Samuel is the middleman between the people and God. He's mediating between them. You don't need that. Right? We're church, as church-age believers, we are our own priests. As Peter says in 1 Peter 2.9, we belong to a royal priesthood. You don't need to go to a priest to confess your sins. You confess your sins directly to God. You don't need to go to a priest for him to make your petition before God. You have direct, immediate, instantaneous access to the third heaven. Don't forget these things. This is, these are part of the blessings that we have as being church-age believers. They didn't have that blessing in the Old Testament. This is why they have their priest, Samuel, as their middleman between them and God. Keep reading verse 22. Yahweh said to Samuel, listen to their voice and appoint them a king. So Samuel said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. What's happening here? is God is using the same phrase that he used at the beginning of this whole event. Look back at verse 7 in 1 Samuel 8. In verse 7 it says, The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people. Same phrase. In regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Because they don't want a king that I've designed, a Deuteronomy 17 king, they want a king like all the other nations because they want to be like all the other nations because they don't want to trust me. They want to trust what they can see and touch and feel. They want to conform themselves to the world and they want a leader who will represent the way that they think. And so what's happening is verse 7 and verse 22 are bookends to this event where the people are demanding a king. They each bookend the event with this phrase, uh, this direction from God to Samuel, telling Samuel to listen to the voice of the people. God here is judging the people by giving them the type of king that they want. The king's name will be Saul. And at first, the people will think, he's the perfect man for the job. Let's all vote for Saul. Perfect. He's a great man for the job. Because he's tall and handsome and he looks like he's got the, the, just the build to be a great leader. Because remember, they're thinking from a perspective of what we can see and touch and feel. They want a powerful man who looks powerful and impressive to lead them in battle and to lead them as a people. Because they think not by faith they think by sight as his reign unfolds Saul will be a disaster of disasters and he will rebel against God he will even consult mediums and then God will remove him in a very ugly way in a violent way because this king Saul is a king who the people never should have, is the type of king that the pe- people never should have asked for. And we will see more of this as this goes along. Let's just read a little bit of chapter 9 
And we'll get into more detail of chapter 9 next time. Chapter 9, verse 1. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abel, the son of Zerar, the son of Bekorath, the son of Aphia, the son of a Benjamite, a mighty man of valor. He had a son whose name was Saul, a choice and handsome man, and there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up he was taller than than any of the people. Just stop for a minute here. You see in verse 9 that he's a Benjamite. You know right up front he's the wrong man for the job. Why do you know that up front? Because he's not from the tribe of Judah. And how do we know about the tribe of Judah? Because we're only in, in 1 Samuel here. Right? We're not in, in 2 Samuel where you see David. We're not in the New Testament where you see Jesus being from the tribe of Judah. How do we know that the king, that the kingly line will come from Judah? Turn back to Genesis. Genesis 49. Remember when Jacob is giving the blessing to all of his various sons. In Genesis 49, in Genesis 49, 8, Jacob is giving the blessing to his son Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down to you. Judah is a lion's whelp. A lion, that's interesting. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion who dares rouse him up. The scepter, here we go. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. That's the prophecy. The prophecy that Messiah, Messiah is king, in order for the true kingly line to to be established, ultimately the kingly line has to be established through the tribe of Judah. The, The king must be the king that fits God's design, that is, not the people's desire for a king like all the other nations. The king that fits God's design must come through the tribe of Judah. And so we know right up front that Saul, who's a Benjamite from another tribe, is not going to be the, the kingly line that fits God's design. What's God, what God is going to do here is he's going to give them a king who fits the pattern that they're asking for, a king like all the other nations, a king who doesn't live by faith. And so we're seeing this kind of backdrop in chapter 8 setting the stage for a king who's going to be a disaster all this these these warnings that are given in chapter 8 that the king's going to do all these sorts of messed up things that sets the stage for the appointment of the the let's call him the false start king Saul it's not that God had a false start that's an impossibility God is communicating to the people that their desire for a king was a false start, that their desire for a king was wrong. Then we keep reading verse 3 of chapter 9. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to his son Saul, 
Take now with you one of the servants and arise, go search for the donkeys. He passed through the hill country of Ephraim and passed through the land of Shadashah, but they did not find them. Then they passed through the land of Sha'alim, but they were not there. Then they passed through the land of the Benjamites, but they did not find them. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to a servant who was with him, Come and let us return, or else my father will cease to be concerned about the donkeys and will become anxious for us. He said to him, Behold, now there is a man of God in this city, and the man is held in honor. All that he says surely comes true. Now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us about our journey on which we have set out. Then Saul said to his servant, But but behold, if we go, what shall we bring the man? For the bread is gone in our sack, from our sack, and there is no present to bring to the man of God. What do we have? The servant answered Saul again and said, Behold, I have in my hand a fourth of a shekel of silver. I will give it to the man of God, and he will tell us our way. Look at verse 9. Formerly in Israel, when a man went to inquire of God, he used to come, he used to say, Come and let us go to the seer. For he who is called a prophet now was formerly called a seer. We get a little nugget there. We get a little gem there. Samuel is judge, priest, and prophet. He will establish, we believe that he established, the, a school of prophets. We'll see the school of prophets as the book of Samuel unfolds. But what we see here is that a prophet wasn't just called a prophet, he's also called a seer. It's an ancient word for a prophet. That was the old name for a prophet, a seer, because God would reveal the things of God to the prophet. He would see the things of God, which God would reveal to Kim. And so this is just a, 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 a little nugget that we get. It should be in parentheses there in your text of the, the, the function of a prophet because the reason he's called a seer is because that's what he would do. He would see the things of God that God would reveal to Kim. Verse 10, Then Saul said to his servant, Well said, well said come, let us go. So they went to the city where the man of God was. As they went up the slope to the city, they found young women going out to draw water and said to them, Is the seer here? They answered them and said, He is. See, he is ahead of you. Hurry now, for he has come into the city today. For the people have a sacrifice on the high place today. As soon as you enter the city, you will find him before he goes up to the high place to eat. For the people will not eat until he comes, because he must bless the sacrifice. Afterward, those who are invited will eat. Now therefore, go up for you, go up, for you will find him at once. So they went up to the city. As they came into the city, behold, Samuel was coming out toward them to go up to the high place. The prophet they're looking for is Samuel. The seer is Samuel. Because Samuel, as this chapter unfolds, is going to, as, as these chapters unfold, is going to anoint Saul, who at first is a very humble man. He's, at least it appears he's humble. But then as he gets power, like Lord Acton said long ago, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That is a true statement for the person who rejects God, for the person who lives by sight and not by faith. And sadly, this is how Saul will live by sight and not by faith, because Saul fits the pattern of how the people lived. And God is giving the people the king that they wanted, who fits the type of king that they wanted, 
a king like all the other nations. We'll study more of this as we go along through these chapters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We ask that you help us understand it. Help us understand that these are not just historical facts, but they're historical facts that teach us about the ways of the world, that teach us how we are to live, how we are to think, and how we are to prioritize our lives. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the rain that you have given us. We ask that you give us more. And we ask that you give us safe travels home this evening. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.